Hi and welcome to the Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. This is episode 27. First of all, thanks to those lovely listeners who got in touch and told me where it was that they listened to the episode, the last episode of the Lydia Project, Fun Answers. They involved uh, on walks, jogs, cleaning, but my favourite was the cooking shepherd's pie whilst the baby had their nap. Perfect, don't you think? Well, in today's conversation, wherever you might listen to it, we chat with CPX staff researcher, Dr. Natasha Moore, about a new film called For the Love of God, How the Church is Better and Worse Than You Ever Imagined. When I heard about the film, I was initially intrigued because of the stellar title. I kind of assumed that because I knew about the film and its showings around Australia, that every Christian would know about it. But then I discovered that this just wasn't true and I was talking to people about it and they just hadn't heard about it. So since recording the conversation with Natasha, I've seen the film and loved it. Seriously, if you've heard of it, try and get along to see it. Um, If you haven't heard of it though, well, I am so glad we are in your ears today because I think once you get to the end of the conversation, you will be quite interested in the film. The Centre for Public Christianity or CPX was founded to be a generous, reasonable, thoughtful Christian voice in the public sphere. I think you'll agree that Dr. Natasha Moore is a great spokesperson for them, encapsulating all these qualities in our short time together. Natasha, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me for the Lydia Project. Pleasure. Um, I want to start by asking how you came to faith in Christ. I count myself as having come to faith uh, as a teenager. Uh, In fact, it's just been 20 years. I've had my 20-year anniversary with Jesus. (laughs) Um, Not to be too cheesy about it. I always believed in God. As a kid, I kind of went to a Catholic primary school. And um, as a family, we went to church kind of intermittently. I was always kind of keen on the idea. But I'm not sure I really understood what it was all about until I started going to a church with some people at school to a youth group as a teenager and it just kind of occurred to me that I was in a Bible study with this group of girls and I thought I believed in God but the fact that they believed in God made a difference to their lives and I was like oh I don't this isn't really computing for me so I went on kind of a camp midway through that year and the talks were on this kind of classic gospel presentation called Two Ways to Live um, which many people will be familiar with So it just kind of goes through the arc of like creation and fall and salvation. And I kind of, it all clicked into place and I was like, okay, I believe this. And if it's all or nothing with Jesus, then I'm in for all. Now, I know that you are actually Dr. Natasha, not (laughs) Natasha. Apparently. What are you a doctor in? Well, I'm not a real doctor. I have a PhD in English literature. Okay. And what specific... So I worked on Victorian poetry, so 19th century poetry. Do you know I'm related to Elizabeth Barrett Browning? You're kidding, because I wrote my thesis on her. Did you Among really? others. Yes, I absolutely did, and oh. I love her, and she's wonderful. How are you related to her? My husband, <gasps> vaguely. Oh, yeah. I need all of the details, please. Okay. Like, <laughs> you need to track that like down. <laughs> um, she's fabulous. I really, really like her, because they only had one kid Do you know well. I don't even like poetry? <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I don't think her kid did either, from what I know of him, (laughs) because she married very late. She was kind of an invalid or 
you know, they thought she was an invalid. She was kind of on the couch for years and her father was very controlling. Her mother died, I think, when she was quite young. And the father kind of forbade any of his children from marrying. Um, he didn't want them going off and starting their own families. And so, but, you know, one by one they did and defied him and he would cut them off and not talk to them again. Um, and he kind of controlled her, like kept her a little bit, you know, sick and infantilized and you know she was this semi-famous poet and at some point Robert Browning started writing to her um, and being like basically I love you like I love your poetry and he was not that well-known a poet at the time he was just kind of starting out and he was a bit younger than her and then you know they have this wonderful literary courtship like they write letters to each other and sort of you know in secret so eventually she elopes with him at the point at which her doctor said to her you need to go to Italy for your health don't you wish someone would say to you <laughs> you need to go to Italy for your health yes, um, and her father refused and she was like actually he's not on my side and so that's when she decided to elope with Robert so even you know in the middle of the 19th century she had I think she had a couple of miscarriages. She had her first kid at like 41 or something. So, you know, it's a really, that's such a great story. Didn't know any of that. Anyway, yeah. Um, so yes, I was working on a bunch of poets in the middle of the 19th century. Um, there's a lot of angst at the time about, you know, it's kind of the first modern age, just after the industrial revolution, urbanization, you know, the rise of the middle class, everything's a bit, kind of unpoetic, like modern life is very mundane and mediocre and, and there's a sense of like, how can you write poetry about that? Because everyday life is just not very poetic anymore. Mm. The way it used to be back in the Middle Ages. With long and, walks through yes. rose gardens. <laughs> That's and, right. Yep. Um, and so some poets are kind of turning to write about King Arthur or, you know, Greek and Roman myth and that kind of thing, these more poetic subjects. And my poets that I was looking at were all like, no, we need to figure out a way to write poetry about our own time and about real everyday life and either to make that poetic or to make poetry unpoetic enough to fit it. And so I was looking at that kind of impulse. Which has actually continued, I don't really Yeah, well, I mean, now it's completely kind of not controversial, right? Yeah. Now we would go, there's no such thing as this, you can't write poetry about this, it's not poetic enough. Yeah. So, you know, I was kind of interested in what happens between mm. then and now. I haven't entirely got that question clear, but in terms of, because it, the impulse happens at the time and then it sort of dies and maybe goes off into the novel. But anyway, mm. I could talk oh, about that all day. Oh, interesting. That was a really long answer to your question. No, sorry. <laughs> I sidetracked. And then how did you end up working at the Centre for Public Christianity? Yeah, it's a bit of a miracle, really. I mean, it's not a thing I could have planned because I have the best job in the world, but I could never have intended to have it because it doesn't exist outside of almost the job that I do, and that's it. Like, we're this kind of quite small organisation, and um, there aren't really other organisations that much like what we do. Uh, so I, when I finished my PhD, I studied in the UK, and I... I planned to be an academic to, you know, research and teach um, English literature. You may be aware that there are no jobs <laughs> in academia. Um, so I applied for jobs um, for two years. So this is kind of the process, like you apply all over the world. Every job has hundreds of applicants, you know, you kind of are on this, on the market is what they call it, on the job market. 
So I kind of did a few bits and pieces in the US and worked at UNSW for a little while, like not in my field. And was looking around and, you know, continuing this slog. And then this job came up for a year. So my colleague Justine Toe was going on maternity leave and I was like, you know, they wanted so much to take a place for a year. And I was like, well, I probably won't get it because I have no media experience, but it'd be cool to do it. It's a really cool job and it'd be good to get some media experience so that as an academic, I kind of have that string to my bow. Um, and I applied and by the grace of God, um, got it. And, and it was just, you know, like a steep learning curve in lots of ways, like different world for me. Um, like I'm not kind of a media junkie or anything. Um, I don't love the news cycle, but I'm really interested in like cultural critique, cultural commentary, um, analysis. So it kind of gave me a break from applying for jobs, which is such a nightmare process as anyone who has done it for any period of time will know. So that I could actually pause and go, do I really want to be an academic? You know, and you can't think that thought when you're applying because you have to be fully dedicated to the task. <laughs> but that kind of gave me the room to think about it and be like, actually, this job, there are things about it that are kind of the good side of being an academic with none of the downsides <laughs> to it. The, the marking pages. Um, <laughs> that's right. No marking, no, no marking. Submission. And so, none of the politics of, mm. you know. Yeah, so at the end of the year, they asked me to stay, and I was like, well, as it is the best job in the world, I think I will say yes. So I probably should have asked a bit before then. Tell me a little bit about yeah. the Centre for Public Christianity. Yeah, so we're, uh, yeah, we're a media company. So we were founded just over 10 years ago by John Dixon and Greg Clark, who kind of looked at the media landscape and went, well, the Christian faith and what Christians really believe is not always represented adequately in the media and by the media. And it'd be great to have kind of a generous, reasonable, thoughtful Christian voice in that conversation, the conversation about, you know, the issues of our day, about what culture is, what our cultural moment is, all that kind of thing. So they just kind of started this center and started sending off articles to papers and stuff and not really knowing if like anyone would accept things written from an overtly Christian perspective, but they did. And so we do a bunch of things. One of the things is writing for mainstream media. So we write for the ABC, the Fairfax papers and that kind of thing intermittently. We have a weekly podcast called Life and Faith. I listen <laughs> Cross <laughs> advertising I love here. It. Oh yeah, go for um, it. <laughs> and most um, of my listeners like listening to podcasts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this makes sense. So we do speaking and we hold public events, lectures, that kind of thing, uh, and we make documentaries and write books and that kind of thing. So really, we just want to be part of the public conversation about the issues of our time and kind of say, well, actually Christians have something to say on every aspect of life. You know, we have something that we think is valuable and interesting to everyone. And that actually if Christians are missing from that conversation, everyone misses out. That's not just a disadvantage for Christians that they want to kind of have a voice at the table, but also for everyone, because we think that Christian faith conduces to human flourishing and therefore it's better if 
the Christian perspective is present in that. So we don't want to kind of do that in an entitled, you know, the church has power and the church deserves to be heard um, sort of way. Like we live in a culture which is pluralistic and, you know, people have different perspectives, but we think that the Christian perspective should be part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you guys do that really well, actually. Obviously, because you. you guys are try. All professionals. That's what you're really trying to do. But just when you were describing it, the uh, the generous, reasonable sharing of viewpoint mm. that is what comes across. Well, I, I mean, I think especially as uh, the public conversation gets more and more polarized, you know, there's so much, so much of what I read online, and I try to read kind of across party lines and everything, and from different perspectives, just almost everything that you read when you think about it you're like this is written for people who already agree with whatever the position is and there's very little kind of appealing to people who don't already agree even if people think they are actually often it's a bit too snarky or a bit too mm. complacent mm. or smug mm. um, and so we work really hard not to be snide and not to rant and those kinds of things that are so natural to the media as it is a lot now um, and it's a hard discipline sometimes but we really you know we want to be heard by people who don't think the same things as us so we think it's worth working hard at. Mm. And so your particular role in CPX? So my title is research fellow so I kind of do the things that we do. <laughs> I write I'm one of the presenters of the podcast I do speaking around the place at schools and churches and various things and I've been doing a lot of research for the documentary that we've just made which yes. I think we're going to talk we about. We are <laughs> going to talk about the documentary so I know you've actually been traveling all over Australia promoting the documentary mm, recently. Mm -hmm. Tell me first of all like I, mean, I love the title it's called For the Love of God how the church or why how the church? church how the church is better and worse than you could possibly imagine than you ever imagined oh man I, <laughs> I know we get it and we still get it wrong like when we say so it is quite a complicated it is. it's but all it's about a, the long subtitle it's a really right? good title I think it's so <laughs> intriguing so tell me what the documentary is about sure so we've discovered in the course of doing the work that we do you know we used to write articles and uh, not many places actually have comment sections anymore. You might notice that <laughs> that, that doesn't have when you read, um, you know, news outlets. But up until the last couple of years, as that's disappeared, we'd write articles for the ABC or wherever. And then in the comments, people would say things like, yeah, 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 but what about the Crusades? What about the oppression of women? You know, the Bible is a book about genocide. Christianity's been really terrible for the world. Child abuse, you know, this whole kind of litany of wrongs. So why should we take any of this seriously? Well, you know, fair question. Um, it's just become really clear that if I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago, people used to kind of go, oh, Christianity is a bit outdated or, you know, just irrelevant. Now people are much more likely to say, actually, Christianity is bad. It's bad for people and it's bad for society. And so we really wanted to address that objection and that, you know, deeply felt uh, kind of barrier for people in coming to consider the Christian faith for themselves. And so we set out to kind of <laughs> do the whole of Christian history in a way. 
which when you say it like that sounds like a big job, doesn't it? And it's taken a little bit longer than we anticipated. (laughs) Um, So really, we just wanted to look at the terrible things in Christian history and say, yeah, you're right. There are some really terrible things and we don't want to hide from that at all. We don't want to be defensive. We don't want to explain it away. We want to be totally candid about it. And that means also, you know, where things are a bit overblown, if the context isn't well understood, or if there are kind of myths about some of that history, we want to clear that up as well, but never, you know, excusing what's been done. We also wanted to say, actually, there are some really great stories as well that are not well known, particularly in terms of how Christianity has shaped our world. Things like human rights, charity, humility, just these like very basic bedrock things that are so ingrained in our culture, actually, that we don't even notice that they're there, but that are dramatic changes from the ancient world that Christianity first was born into. And then we kind of go, well, what do we do with that? What do we do with there's these terrible things and these great things? And what does it, you know, do you just match them up and cancel them out? What do you do? And so we want to, in everything, be pointing back to Jesus and saying, okay, well, let's look at what he had to say and the example that he gave to his followers and what he called them to do when they're doing these terrible things, when they're going off and crusading, when they're instigating inquisitions and persecuting people. Is that a departure from what Jesus said or is it what he said? When they're doing these wonderful things, caring for the poor and the sick, fighting for the abolition of slavery, all these things, is that in line with what Jesus said or not. The metaphor that we're using, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but John Dixon is one of the presenters. John and Justine and Simon Smart um, are the three presenters of the documentary. Um, And this is an example that John's been using for years. So some people will have heard it before anyway. But he talks about how judging the church by the terrible things that Christians have done is a bit like judging a musical composition based on a bad performance. So if you have kind of a beautiful piece of music, if someone plays it and they have no idea how to play their instrument, then you would imagine that the piece of music is bad. But actually that doesn't cancel out, doesn't compromise the the composition itself. So, you know, we want to kind of say Jesus wrote this beautiful tune and when Christians have played in tune with him, that's been of great benefit to the world. When they played it badly, that's often been disastrous. But to really look at the tune if you want to understand the value of this thing. As you were researching and did you travel as well? Like I know the documentary shot on I mostly didn't. I did a lot of the research of the stories. Yep. I picked many of the places that we right. would travel. Okay, you just didn't get to go. I, um, I went to Victoria. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Which was great. So, so as you were researching, mm. what kind of stood out to you as as one of the worst worsts and one of the best best? Well, one that's almost simultaneously the best and the worst um, of Christian history is looking at the history of slavery. We kind of take that from the beginning. We have, uh, there's an episode that we call Rights and Wrongs, which looks at human value and human rights and where that comes from and, you know, our idea that every human is valuable, which we think of as kind of a given and it really isn't when you look at history and across different cultures. So we 
trace the emergence of Christianity into this world, which is like a world of slave empires, like there are two million slaves or something in the Roman Empire. And the way that Christianity sort of doesn't confront that head on, but starts to sort of modify it from within and the things that they do. But then, of course, so slavery dies out, essentially, by the time you get to the medieval world. But then, of course, you have the reinstatement of slavery in particularly horrific form in the Americas. Um, And so we have a section where we look at American slavery. And this is just, you know, it would be hard to find a more terrible example of people using the Bible. It's not just kind of ignoring the Bible, not just going, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't really care what this Jesus guy says, but actually using the Bible to back up the worst things that they're doing. So this is a thing that you find, you know, an easy way to kind of get out of the accusations that people throw at Christians is to be like, oh, yeah, but those people, they weren't really Christians. And I think it's just not that simple that people, you know, who genuinely have a faith, who genuinely want to obey the Bible, can have these massive blind spots and can be so swayed by their own self-interest, their own greed, whatever it is, that they can look at the Bible and go, well, this is what it says. That's kind of what I want it to say. And this is completely true of the institution of slavery in America and the practice of it. There's this one 19th century preacher who says that Slavery could not be maintained for an hour outside the church if it weren't sustained in it. That basically, if the churches weren't upholding this, it would fall apart in a minute. Like, so it's because of Christian support of slavery in this period that it happens. And you see this when the abolitionists, and particularly when former slaves start speaking out against this system. They use America's supposedly Christian identity against it. They're like, you call this a Christian nation, you call this a free nation. What about this? What about us? You know, this is not what Christianity is supposed to be. So you have kind of this terrible story of self-interest and complicity and horrific treatment of other people. But then you also have the story of abolition and we look at William Wilberforce and abolition of the slave trade. Um, and a little bit at kind of abolition in America as well. And that's just such a story of incredible courage and persistence. And, you know, there's this there's this moment that didn't make it into the documentary because we had, like, some quite robust arguments about whether it could fit or not, where John Wesley, the great Methodist minister, he wrote to William Wilberforce at the start of his campaign against the slave trade, And I think it's the last letter that Wesley is known to have written um, before he died. He wrote to him and he was like, look, and he he agreed with him that slavery was a terrible blot and needed to be done away with. But he was like, look, unless God is for you, this is not going to happen. Like, it's impossible. Like, the, the powers against this. Everyone stands against this parliament and the king and, you know, all the wealthy interests of society. There's no way forward on this. But he's like, if God is for you, then who can be against you? And Wilberforce really felt that, you know, he had this glittering political career ahead of him. And he was like, no, this is the issue. This is the hill I'm going to die on. And so became, you know, 
kind of a pain to all these people <laughs> because he wouldn't shut up about this one thing and squandered kind of all his political capital on that. I mean, that being said, he also did many, many other things. Um, he was part of kind of a group called the Clapham Sect and they affected so many changes, you know, in society and founded so many organisations and including, you know, the Royal Society for the Protection of Children and Animals, the RSVCA and... So yeah, I think that that's just this story of like someone going, God has called me to this impossible task. And so I don't care that it's impossible. I'm going to do it and changed history mm. as a result. Sorry, I get a bit emotional about it. <laughs> I'm kind of tearing up a little. <laughs> it's an amazing story, isn't it? Mm. When you put it in that light and see how big an opposition he faced. Mm. You know, we read it in a paragraph and go, oh, he stood against it yeah. and ended up stopping. And oh, isn't I've that just great? found, like, in the course of all of this that, you know, it's so easy to be like, oh, yeah, I would have been Wilberforce because I agree that slavery is wrong. So, and you kind of go, no, 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 no. Like, the courage that it took, the immense kind of strength and commitment that that took to stand against what everyone around you is saying and doing, like, and with no prospect of success and not knowing how that could work. Like, no, I'm not Wilberforce. <laughs> Does it make you think, though, of what the issues are today that we are possibly blind to? Mm. And, you know, what are the best and the worst in the church today? Yeah. You think? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I think that the study of history should always give us some humility. I think it's so easy now to look at the past and, you know, we kind of go, well, we're from the vantage point of all knowledge and therefore we look at historical figures and we go, tick, good job, cross, bad job. If you didn't think the way that we think about race and gender and all these issues that we're so enlightened on, then we disown you. Just thinking that we're the measure of all things is such hubris. Uh, but of course we have blind spots like everyone does. And we also, I mean, the church is such a broad church <laughs> that, you know, I think there are definitely voices within the church who are always calling the church back to being what it claims to be, you know, following in the footsteps of Jesus and listening to him and playing in tune with what he taught and did. And so, I mean, there are lots of issues that that's, True on, I think, you know, refugees and asylum seekers, uh, like that policy uh, is probably a big one. Race in general, Aboriginal Australians and the way that they're treated within, well, within Australian society, I mean, more widely than the church. Because reconciliation should be, should be a concern of the church and is in many places um, and in many communities. But... The Christian faith is all about reconciliation between God and humans and between humans and humans. And so this should certainly be key to the practice of the church and to what Christian communities look like. Probably care, care for the environment, you know, I think we're rediscovering that to some extent. And, and often these are issues where people outside the church critique Christians and say, hey, this is not okay. And then Christians, if they're foolish, will get defensive and be like, back off. 
um, you don't know what you're talking about. And if they're wise, we'll go, we'll look at our own texts, what we believe God has given us, and go, actually, yeah, the scripture talks about stewardship of the environment, not of plundering it. Um, and we need to make sure that we're being good stewards of what God has given us. So I think things like that, but these are all, you know, there's such diversity within the church on these issues and many, many more that we're all trying to kind of figure out, well, you know, we have these texts, we have this Bible, we think God has spoken to us through it. We want to be obeying him in our lives um, and figuring out what that means for our context and in our day. And that will mean all kinds of things in all kinds of situations. Yes, thank you. So what is the plan now for the documentary? There are many versions of the documentary, in actual fact. <laughs> Let me explain this because it is kind of complicated. So there's a cinema version. So it's been um, showing in cinemas around the country uh, since May. And that's going to kind of continue indefinitely. We're um, using a platform called FamForce, which means that anyone can go on and host a screening at their local cinema. And you just have to get a certain number of tickets um, sold and then the screening goes ahead. Um, and so that will be kind of available if you want to do that in a year's time. You can still do that. That's great, um, by the way. Yeah, it? yeah, and it's been working really well. Buy, like once the cinema said, yes, it's going ahead, people can still yeah, buy tickets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just have to, two weeks out, you have to have a certain number. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, so they won't make it happen if it's only like two of us want to go yeah. see it. But, like, <laughs> but the tipping point isn't that high. Mm. Um, so that's kind of an 86-minute version which is like a drawn from all of that. We've done a lot more than that, but we wanted to have a kind of film uh, cut for people who want to see it on the big screen. Um, then we have four episodes, which are kind of 50, 55 minutes each. So episode one is kind of war and peace, religious violence. Uh, episode two, rights and wrongs, human rights and human value. Episode three is rich and poor. And it's about charity and poverty um, and wealth in the church and episode four is power and humility um, and looks at things like the treatment of women and witch hunts and colonialism and that sort of thing missionaries so those are available to purchase online so you can go to betterandworse.film is the website for all of this but we also you know, we're aware that people want to watch these things in different ways. So, and we really just want this material to be available to people in the form that works best for them. So what we've actually done, there's also, if you go to betterandworse.film, there's also a digital platform which has pretty much all of the content in segments. So if you want to watch this bit on the Crusades or that bit on the Inquisitions or this bit on slavery or whatever it is, it's all available for free to watch to share to download whatever you want to do with that and there are also kind of teacher resources and small group resources if you want to kind of work through the material in whatever context you do that in so that could be high school ri do you think yeah really? so we've worked with teachers yeah. to have so we've got kind of a bunch of sort of lesson plans mm -hmm. like um, exercises that students can work through like use these clips and you know discuss these issues and mm -hmm. so on so hopefully that's adaptable however people so if they wanted to like watch full episodes in class they could but if they want to do something on Martin Luther King or mm. something on women and Christianity or whatever it is then those things are available 
when we started doing this, the plan was to make a four episode documentary. But along the way, we just, we then were like, no, let's have a digital platform with all the segments and people can watch it how they want to watch it. And that's how people watch things now. And then we were like, no, but we should have a cinema cut. And so we just did all of it, <laughs> all <Great>. of it. <laughs> and do you hope that one of the TV stations or um, Yeah, network? so we are still in talks about whether it might air somewhere and whether that would be kind of one episode or whether all four or... Are there still, like I remember there used to be rules around religious programming minimums. Yes. Are they gone? Look, I don't know the answers to these questions. <laughs> I'm not in these conversations, okay. so, yeah. All right. But and there are kind of various yeah. parameters, yes. And so if it's available for free, how is it all funded? So we made the documentary on donations. We had some very generous donors who put up the money for us to make the thing. That would cost a lot. Yes. Yeah, it's an expensive process, isn't it, yeah. filmmaking? I haven't been involved in making a documentary before. And yeah, it's kind of full on. I think we'll make some money off the screenings and all sure. that kind of thing yeah. and DVD sales, but it's really like it's not a for-profit project. Mm -hmm. And is that CPX as a whole? Is CPX funded? is um, funded by donors yep. and you know a little bit by the work we do we're paid for speaking and you know we sell our books and documentaries and so on but mostly donations we're part of the bible society australia group and they look after us that's great thank you so much You're for so taking some time to chat with me this afternoon it's been great and enjoy the rest of your travels around australia where to next after brisbane ah uh, so tomorrow i'm at a screening in Maruchigo. Mm -hmm. um and And the relationship with Elizabeth Barrett Browning, it turns out my mother-in-law's great-great-grandmother was Elizabeth Barrett Browning's sister. Or maybe her cousin. We're really not so sure. <laughs>